Hi everyone, this is Catherine from the Media Education Lab, and you're listening to the Courageous Rhode Island podcast, the show that finds common ground, builds media literacy skills, and encourages curiosity for the people of Rhode Island. In this episode, our host Renee Hobbs talks to Joanna Wasserman, who serves as the Education Initiatives Manager at the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum. Today, you'll hear Wasserman talk about what Holocaust education looks like in today's classrooms, why history education is so crucial in making the future different from the past, and the role propaganda plays in all of this. Hi, I'm Renee Hobbs, and welcome to another episode of Courageous R.I., the podcast. Today, I'm here with my friend, Joanna Wasserman of the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. She directs the education initiatives and uh, manages programs uh, in education, and we've been hanging out together and learning from each other for a long time, Joanna. So when I got this great opportunity to help address the problem of targeted violence and hate in Rhode Island through media literacy initiative that focuses on deep listening. You were one of the first people I thought about because of the great work that we did together. Uh, and I, I think right now in 2023, um, there's a huge amount of momentum as 17 states have required students to teach about the Holocaust. What's driving that sense of urgency about making this topic a core aspect of American public education? I think, Renee, it's really nice to see you and be with you on your podcast. Um, And I think actually the number is up to now 24 states requiring teaching about the Holocaust. People, I think, are often surprised that only 24 Say many states um, have it in their standards. Some don't have it at all. There's wide variation. Um, and one thing that we really recognize at the museum, and I'm sure you know from your work, is that education is really local. Um, and each state and each district makes decisions about what to include. Um, and we at the museum are really focused on ensuring that the Holocaust is taught in all 50 states and that it's taught accurately. Um, And so that's really our mandate and our mission. We're increasingly seeing um, emphasis on interest about teaching about the Holocaust, I think for a whole range of reasons. One is that it's receding in time um, and people really recognize that it's important for students to learn about it. You know, the museum has done a lot of research. Other organizations have done a lot of research and we found that a quarter of teachers, their goal in teaching about the Holocaust is to ensure that their students understand that this was a real historical event. So I think that tells you something um, about the need um, to really teach it to students. Whoa. Yeah. So their goal is simply to communicate that it really happened? That it really happened um, and that it's a real event in history. Um, and teachers indicate that their students are coming to class with very little, if any, um, knowledge. Maybe have never heard the term anti-Semitism or know what it is. Um, and I think, you know, the confluence of what we're seeing in just contemporary culture and social media, with misinformation, um, and sometimes less emphasis on history education, I think, 
um, has kind of been a driving force in positioning the Holocaust as an important topic of study for students to encounter. Um, and we're finding actually increasingly that it's being taught in the English language arts classroom because there are so many requirements in Could history you education. About that? Yeah. So we found that, um, you know, that's an increasing segment of the audience that we serve are English language arts teachers. Oftentimes they're teaching and we hope they're teaching in an in interdisciplinary way with their counterparts in history. But there are so many events um, and topics to cover in history that oftentimes teachers have very little, if any, time to really delve into the history of the Holocaust, which, as you know, is an incredibly complex event with so many different facets to explore, to understand, you know, that big question of how and why could something like this actually happen, um, that it's really being complemented in the English language arts classroom where teachers have more flexibility. Um, they oftentimes are teaching four to six weeks um, on a Holocaust text, um, whether it's a memoir um, or diary or something like that. Um, and so we increasingly are trying to support that work as well, so that if students are reading the diary of Anne Frank or Night by Elie Wiesel, they're also recognizing that those are specific um, individuals' experiences and that there's a diversity of experiences that um, people faced. Mm and trying to place those in historical context, which sometimes you get, but in a limited way in a text. So there are a lot of different kind of trends that we're seeing. Um, but one thing that we just really recognize is that um, increasingly um, throughout time, but I think increasingly people are showing a great deal of interest in teaching and learning about the Holocaust. And we are just trying our best um, to support that, because obviously it's really important for students to explore this period in history and to understand the consequences wow. of hate and anti-Semitism, um, especially in systems where they go unchecked. Right. So we were glued to the uh, our our public broadcasting screens earlier this winter when the three-part series, Americans and the Holocaust, launched. Can you talk a little bit about the education outreach materials that got developed in relation to that project and what that was like for you in helping bring those to educators all over the country? Yes. So um, the film, The U.S. and the Holocaust by Florentine Films, um, directed by Ken Burns, Lynn Novick, and Sarah Botstein, was actually partly inspired by our special exhibition, Americans in the Holocaust, which is actually traveling um, around the country to um, public and university libraries. So that's just related to your last question. That's part of our mission is to really take the history of the Holocaust to communities where there is little or no access um, to resources and information about the history. Um, and so this was a very long process. Um, I actually got to be there when Lynn Novick interviewed one of our Holocaust survivor volunteers, Susan Morsinger. Susie Hilsenroth is how she is featured in the film. Um, and it's just a beautiful way that they kind of weave together the historical events and historical context with personal stories, which, you know, for students, I think really um, 
helps them understand, again, back to the idea that this was a real historical event and these were real people um, and how it really impacted real people's lives. Um, and so we worked with PBS Learning Media and Florentine Films um, to think about just best practices for um, creating lessons about the Holocaust, really just giving, they actually bring on teachers um, who develop the lesson plans, who watch the film, get a little bit of a preview, get to see the film before it airs um, and think about the types of topics and lessons that they want to discover. So the, the topics were interdisciplinary and some were for the English language arts classroom. So one of the teachers you know, a motif throughout the film was the Statue of Liberty, and she really wanted to explore the idea of symbolism. Um, and what does the Statue of Liberty represent? When do we live up to our ideals and when not? Um, and that gets to some of the enduring questions that the history of the Holocaust raises, um, which I think are really relevant um, for students that are, you know, learning about the history as Americans. How is this part of our American story? Why is it important for us to understand the you know, information that people had, which was a lot, but why it never became a priority? And the film does a beautiful job of kind of really diving deeply into those questions, um, which the history raises. So it was yeah. a really interesting experience and we got to work with um, those organizations to develop um, special live events um, with the filmmakers and with Susie, um, the survivor, and then the teachers got to do a third special event for educators, really talking about their process of, um, you know, grappling with the topics in the film and deciding, you know, one teacher was doing a film on eugenics and one did a, a lesson on the diversity of American responses. That's another takeaway from learning about the Holocaust is, you know, some people were reading the news and responding and thinking about what they, with their in their own power, could actually do, which, you know, at times was quite a lot, sponsoring someone, providing support for refugees once they came to the United States. So that's that's one other thing that we hope that people kind of take away and are inspired when they learn about this very dark chapter in human history is actually individuals can think about what they can actually do. What they, what you can do. Now that, that yes. is triggering me a, a memory from memory lane because what you can do is a, was a big initiative of yours at the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. Can you tell me a little bit about the origins of that project and uh, your uh, your approach uh, toward that sort of activist uh, idea? That's yeah. I mean, that? I think I think we, you know, all of us who work at the museum really feel deeply within us that you know, this chapter of human history has the power to inspire people to make the present and the future different than the past. And that's really what we hope people will do, whether they're coming to our building, whether they're learning about it through a film or a resource the museum has developed, a traveling exhibition, you know, some of our resources for classroom use. We hope that people feel inspired um, to respond to these enduring challenges, which are totally different in our, you know, different contexts today. But the idea that what each one of us does really can make a difference in big ways or in small ways, and that 
you know, we try to move people from a sense of helplessness, which I think is a natural response to some of these really enormous challenges like genocide or group targeted violence or hate speech or rising anti-Semitism. It can feel really overwhelming. And so to kind of give examples and provide models is something that we try to do um, in our work so that when people are thinking about what we're confronting today, they can move past that feeling of helplessness, have that sense of inspiration, and have practical ideas of what's possible. I think that is a fabulous description of the transformative impact of um, the museum on my own thinking over the years and of the way in which when we confront uh, the darkness, when we confront the reality of what's possible, what humans can do to each other, then it it creates this sense of real urgency that we're all, we all have to take steps and we all, and there are all, there are things we can do as individuals and that wonderful way in which um, a sense of possibility for the future is uh, engendered by studying this topic and by, and by immersing yourself in the um, complexity of it, the nuance of it. Um, and I know that the museum celebrating its uh, 30th anniversary. And as a result, then the whole showcase of great teaching and learning materials are kind of on full display. Can you share with me one that you think might have particular relevance to, um, uh, before we talk about propaganda, that is, we'll mm -hmm. end our We'll end our talk talking about propaganda. But besides propaganda, is there a, a lesson plan, an activity, or something from the many resources of, of the education curriculum materials that might be relevant to our focus on um, extremist violence? Yeah, so I think, you know, one of the really important things to say about our resources up front um, for educators out there is that they... Everything we do, and I'll mention a few specific ones, um, but everything we provide is free. Um, that is really important for people to know that it's all historically accurate. It's been vetted by historians and um, educators. Um, our materials are nonpartisan. So I think that recognizing some of the challenges that educators are facing right now, that's important for them to know and understand. Um, and that they're really leveraging our collection of primary sources and letting the artifacts and the materials from the time oftentimes speak for themselves and raise their own questions. Um, we've tried a lot of things and we're trying a lot of new things to reach younger audiences who may not be familiar with this history and, you know, may not want to spend a ton of time, but, you know, trying short little chunks. So, um, we have, your audience might be interested to know that we've tried a new way of delivering content through animated videos, which are about five minutes long, that tell individual stories of people trying to get out of Nazi Germany and the Americans who are trying to assist them. And it's all illustrated through artifacts and documents and photographs and newspaper articles. Um, and it's really a powerful way of sharing historical content that's compelling um, and dynamic. So we're experimenting with that. 
We also have some new short, what we call explainer videos on anti-Semitism. And I think related to your question, um, this is an increasingly and troubling problem that we are facing um, in society. I saw some statistics about it, but it's at its highest level ever. Um, anti-Semitic incidents, um, use of anti-Semitic slurs and swastikas. So we've got a couple of short, um, but really, really meaty, um, what we're calling explainer videos on what is anti-Semitism? How does it manifest today? Why is it important to recognize it? And you can never ignore it. You can never overlook it. You can never accept it. You have to respond to it. Um, and one on anti-Semitism throughout time. And I think related to that, we've also recognized that we're seeing very disturbingly um, swastikas and symbols and terms that are actually from this era. And so we have created lessons on the history of anti-Semitism during the Holocaust so students can really understand that a lesson on the history and meaning of the swastika, a glossary of terms. Again, so unfortunately, we are encountering these things more, more and more. And really just understanding their historical weight um, so that when we're recognizing them, we understand why it's important to respond. Yeah. It's that it's that it, it's providing the historical context to understand the the true evil behind those folks who are promulgating those things, putting up stickers, uh, putting up banners, putting uh, uh, flyers on car windows at the grocery store. I saw that the Anti-Defamation League reported that in New England, we've had a huge rise in anti-Semitic uh, uh, activity uh, in, and that in Rhode Island, in New Hampshire, in Massachusetts. Uh, so it's definitely something where... Uh, understanding the um, the legacy of these symbols of hate is super uh, timely and relevant for learners of learners of all ages, really. Yeah. Um, yeah. All right. So we only have a few minutes later, but let's walk down memory lane about our, our, our courageous propaganda adventure long before courageous Rhode Island. The first courageous project <laughs> that I ever did was with you uh, when you invited me to uh, help think through um, teaching about Nazi propaganda. Uh, what thinking back on that was so long ago now. Uh, <laughs> what were some of your um, your highlights and lowlights, shall we say? What What do you remember about that time? Well, so we met when the museum had a different special exhibition called "State of Deception: The Power of Nazi Propaganda," and we were really charged with helping to create educational materials um, to explore propaganda of this period. And I think it was a really big challenge to think about what are what is the right framework um, to analyze this propaganda from this really extreme period. Um, and, you know, I think the revelation that we had um, in going through many, many, many different iterations um, as we were experimenting was that it's so critical to examine propaganda in its historical context. Because, you know, when we were defining propaganda, one of the key ways to recognize it is that it's playing on emotions. And so to look at what is happening at a particular moment in time when the Nazis are putting forward 
their messages that makes Germans, German citizens respond to it in a way that helps them set aside that the Nazis were a fringe and sort of obscure movement and accept them and start to support them. Um, and part of it is there was a depression, right? It was the aftermath of World War I. All of those things, I think, um, play a role. And so I think that was a really important um, learning for us, for me. Um, and also the fact that students and anyone really could think about propaganda setting aside our own historical context and diving deeply into history, um, I think was a really amazing and powerful opportunity because everyone could recognize what was happening at that moment in time that would make a message resonate with an audience and that propaganda doesn't operate in isolation or in a vacuum, right? That it is an interplaying always um, the environment. So. Those I think were really important. You're smiling because I'm we, smiling because we, I'm we, remembering one meeting yeah. we had where I blurted out like I always do something dumb, and <laughs> I said something like, "You know, it's like brainwashing." And you corrected me, and you said, "No, no, no, propaganda is not brainwashing. Propaganda doesn't work without your consent." Right. Right. The fact That's that right. these emotionally uh, powerful ways of othering people, creating national community by including some people and yeah. excluding others, that that requires your consent. You participate. That's why some propaganda works and some right. propaganda doesn't. I remember exactly that like right. thunderbolt, Joanna, and I feel like um, I still see resonance of that idea today uh, in terms of the historical context we're in at this very moment. But, but at the same time, you know, propaganda does play on emotions. And so it's oftentimes difficult in your own time and place because you are emotionally reacting to messages to analyze um, information critically because that's not what it's designed to do. So, um, you know, to practice that skill in history, I think that critical thinking and the reflection that can happen after exploring historical propaganda, you know, we always hoped would help people find a way to step back from the emotions in our own time and think critically about messages that we're encountering today and think about what the potential consequences of messages can be because we saw those in history, right? Beautifully put. Thank you so much for joining me for this courageous Rhode Island podcast. You're helping us see how the study of history and the study of the Holocaust is absolutely central to fighting against the hate we're encountering in our present day. Um, and of course, uh, attached to this podcast will be uh, some links to some of the museum's great educational materials. Congratulations on the 30th anniversary. And thank you so much for being such a valued thought partner and friend. You rock. Thanks for joining me. <laughs> great to be with you. Bye now. Bye-bye.